Let me pray as we get into this passage. So, Father, we, we do give you thanks um, for your word. And, Lord, thanks that, um, that it teaches us and instructs us. Um, and actually, your word also says that um, it's like a lamp. Um, and it's also something that when we look into it, it gives us joy. And so, Father, I pray today that it specifically would be a lamp to those who need it to be a lamp and something that gives joy to those who need joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've been, a lot of you have been asking how Christmas was, and I've been asking you, and so we've had lots of those conversations. And uh, I said to Emmy, before we went away for the week, uh, I was like, hey, I just need one pajama day. Just one day where I wake up in my pajamas and I stay in them all day and then I go to sleep in them at the end of the day, just one day. And so we actually had two of those days, so thank you for allowing that. Um, and, uh, but I, on my pajama day, I turn on the TV, we're at my parents' house and, and they have uh, a cable subscription, which feels very retro. Um, and it's sort of like, uh, you, know, you, you can flip through the channels and you find something to watch. And uh, my favorite TV show, they were doing a marathon. It was The West Wing. And so I caught, uh, you know, I turned it on as about, you know, most of the way through season one of The West Wing. And the, the first season ends with a, with a real cliffhanger, like a serious cliffhanger. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want to ruin it for you. But it ends with a serious cliffhanger. And then, like, when that show came out and you watched it, you had to wait, like, six months before you find out what happens. And, but the great thing is with a marathon or now with streaming services, the cliffhanger is not so much a cliffhanger anymore. Uh, you can kind of just skip to the next one. And so, uh, so this big cliffhanger ending happens and then you watch a commercial break and then there you are into the second thing. And in a sense, what we've done so far with the first chapter of the book of Acts is something like that cliffhanger. Because last week, what we looked at was uh, this passage that uh, ended with a bombshell. And then with a huge bombshell. Uh, because what happened is Jesus said to his, his followers, his few followers, he said, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and not only that, but I'm sending you out then to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is a sort of bombshell uh, description that Jesus gives his disciples about what's going to happen to them and about what they're going to do. And then we just sort of cut it off for you. Uh, and what we're looking at today happens immediately after that. So this is more like a streaming service. Um, I guess it's like happening right after we can flip to the next thing and begin to watch it. Um, but the, here's the thing. This week's passage starts with something even more extraordinary. And so it was extraordinary enough that he said, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. Extraordinary enough that he said, I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth. But this one starts with an ascension. It starts with a literal going up to heaven. Look again at verse 9. It says, after he said this, after he told them they're going to get the Holy Spirit and they're going to be his witnesses. After he said this, he was, a, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And so this is, this is an ascension. Uh, now, now, what's an ascension? We're going to get to that in a minute. But here's what I want us to see today. Without the ascension of Jesus Christ, there is no flourishing and no spreading of the church. Uh, you know, think about it. We celebrate. We just did. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, we make a big deal out of that every year. Uh, we celebrate uh, the death of Jesus. Um, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. These are big holidays that we have in our calendar, things that we celebrate throughout the year. And yet we don't celebrate the ascension. You know, we, we don't stop to talk about it. We don't stop to celebrate it. And yet here's the thing. It's just as crucial as the other ones. And we actually said last week that the two major themes in the book of Acts, uh, which are tied together, are number one, the spreading out of the church across the ancient world, and then number two, the flourishing of both 
the church and the individuals in the church. That, that's the, the two main themes of the book of Acts, the spreading of the church and the flourishing of those within the church. And what we said was the only way an extremely small group of people on the, who, who live on the fringes of society and a fringe part of the world, the only way they could ever see something like that happen would be, A, if the message they're spreading is actually true, and B, that they were supernaturally empowered in some way. And so this is what lies behind the entire message of the book of Acts. And, and what we're going to see today is that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, though I'm just being honest with you, it sounds a bit esoteric. You know, it sounds a bit abstract, uh, but it, this truth, him ascending into heaven is actually a grounded reality that is the cause for our flourishing today. And without it, there's no spread of the church. Uh, the ascension, I once heard someone say, it's, it's sort of like the detonator to a bomb. Without the detonator, the bomb only has potential power, but push the button and then all that power is released. And so the ascension is, is what releases the power of God for both our flourishing and the spread of the church. Uh, you'll see what I mean as we go on. So let's take a look at this and, and let's see what happens after the cliffhanger of verse 8. Uh, we're going to look at, at this under four headings and, and they're going to move somewhat quick because there's four of them. Uh, first, what the ascension is. Secondly, what happened in the cloud because he goes up into a cloud. Thirdly, what the ascension does for our flourishing. And then fourth, what the ascension does for the spreading of the church. So first, let's, what, what is the ascension? Let's think about that, what, what the ascension is. And again, we see this in verse 9. Look again, it's, it's a literal physical going up to heaven. It says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Now, think about it. You can ascend all sorts of things. Uh, you can ascend a ladder. You ascend stairs. You, you ascend a mountain. This is spatial language. It describes going from a space down here to that space up there. Uh, but we're usually much more careful about how we use the word ascend. Uh, we don't normally use it for going up a ladder or up the stairs. You know, you don't say, uh, I'm going to ascend the ladder to change the light bulb. That is not normally how we describe what we're doing. If somebody said that, you'd punch them in the stomach. That's what you would do. But, but here's how we normally use it. We tend to use it for something far more meaningful. We actually, we use that word ascend for, for kings and for queens. Uh, you, you ascend a throne to become king or queen. It's not just a change in physical elevation, but more importantly, it's a change in status. And so when somebody becomes king or queen, there's a ceremony where they not only do they, they often spatially ascend some stairs and sit on a raised throne, but the new king or queen is also given the highest authority. And so you see, it's a change in, in status, not just their space. And so here's, here's something maybe you could do on a weekend. Uh, you could travel, maybe not a weekend. You could travel over to London. So you could hop a plane, fly over there. You could pay your fee to enter Westminster Abbey. And what you would find in there is this. You'd find King Edward's chair. And the chair, it's been used for coronations of the kings and queens of Britain and the Commonwealth for 800 years or more. Uh, the last time it was used was June 2nd, 1953, when Queen Elizabeth was crowned. She ascended the throne. Uh, it's going to be used later this spring when King Charles has his coronation. So let's just say for a minute that you, uh, you splurged and you flew over there and you paid your fee to enter into Westminster Abbey. Uh, and let's say you were really bold and so you jumped the ropes that are cord you know, holding this off from you. And you climb the steps and you sit in the chair. 
you've ascended, right? You've gone up the steps, you're sitting in this exalted, you've ascended, but that doesn't make you the new reigning monarch. (laughs) In other words, you, you may have climbed the stairs spatially, but you haven't ascended the throne. In fact, it, to be honest, it will probably lower your status from free person to locked up criminal. Now, the point is, merely climbing the stairs and sitting on the throne does not make you king or queen. Because an ascension to a throne has much more to do with status than it has to do with the space. The word ascension, it's, it is spatial language, but we, we always use it to describe something much deeper. And so when someone ascends to the throne of a kingdom, what it does is it changes their relationship with the people of that kingdom. The spatial ascension up the stairs to the throne is a visual representation of a deeper truth of the monarch's new status. And that is a real, grounded, non-esoteric, non-abstract, but earth status of glory. The king or the queen is now highly exalted. They are now the crowned one. Everyone bows to them when they walk in the room. The attention of the nation is on this person. It's also, by the way, a status of authority. Everyone is required to do what the new monarch says. And even more than that, it's a responsibility. The monarch is now responsible for the care and the defense of his or her people. And so here in Acts chapter 1, what these 11 men are witnessing is the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne of heaven. Now, where am I getting that? Because all this says, look at, look at it again, literally all it says is he went up into a cloud. So where am I getting that? Well, the cloud is where I'm getting it. And this takes us to point two. So an ascension is a physical ascension. It's a spatial representation of an enthronement, of the crowning of a monarch. But point two, what happens in the cloud? Why does the cloud imply an enthronement for Jesus? You know, maybe it was just a cloudy day. And of course, if he went up and there's clouds there, but of course he goes into a cloud. Why the cloud? Well, years ago when we lived down in San Diego, I was coming back to the office after a lunch meeting. And as I'm getting out of my car, I hear a loud bang. And then I look over across the parking lot and I see this. You can go to the next, the next slide. There's a little video with no sound because um, I'm talking in it and I sound like an idiot. So I took the sound out. <laughs> and this is what I see. Technically, an ascension. This is an ascension. This is water ascending 30, 40 feet into the air. Uh, And someone had hit a fire hydrant, and it was a hit and run, so they hit the fire hydrant and drove away. Like, it was too far away to, like, give the license plate, but I saw the car drive away. Um, And uh, everybody comes rushing out to see this. And you probably didn't see it at the very beginning, but there was a guy running towards it, and that was his car underneath it. And uh, he, let's just say he had a bad day. Uh, his, his sunroof was open, and when they finally shut the water off, it had stripped all the paint off the front of his car. And then when he opened the door, it was just water poured out like in a cartoon. It was, he had a rough day. Now, the point is, here's the point. Just like you were mesmerized by that video, myself, my colleagues, everybody who was in the parking lot was mesmerized by this ascension. And all that was was some water. That was just some water. Um, And we probably stood there for 20 or 30 minutes until the fire department came and shut the water off. We could not look away. And of course, this is what the disciples are doing as we read on in the passage. Uh, Look at at our text again. It says in verse 9 that Jesus ascended uh, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then look at verse 10. I I love this. Verse 10. I love this. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Yeah, of course they were. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. I mean, they are so astonished by, by Jesus going up into the clouds. They don't notice that two angels appear out of thin air. Like two people just appear. They weren't there before. And all of a sudden there's just two people there. Uh, and they start speaking. Them. And of course this makes sense. You know, this is talking about a man flying up into a sky like a hot air balloon. And I do want to acknowledge, I just want to acknowledge that if you're the kind of person who doesn't believe in the, the spiritual, the kind of person who doesn't think that, that maybe there is something beyond what we can see and taste and smell and touch and hear, I want to acknowledge this is hard to believe. And I want to say this is weird. It was so weird that the guys, the 11 guys that were standing there also thought it was weird. So if you think this is strange, so did they. But again, let's just go back to what the text says. It says here that he disappeared into a cloud. And the cloud is where we're getting the idea that this is not just a a spatial ascension, but it's an ascension to a throne. Not just a throne, but to the throne of heaven. And so where am I getting that? Well, all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, a cloud often stood for the the physical uh, representation of the glory or the presence of God. And so as you read through the Bible, for example, in Exodus, Moses, he went up a mountain. In other words, he ascended a mountain and he was in the presence of God. And what it says is that a cloud covered the top of the mountain. The presence, the glory of God came in a cloud. And and it was so glorious that Moses, when he came down, they made him wear like a face mask. So if you thought face masks were 2020, they're so much older than that. Uh, They made him wear a mask because his face was glowing. It was radiant. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel, he, he talks about a vision that he has of seeing the Lord. And so very few, very few people in history have gotten this, but Ezekiel got a vision of seeing the Lord. And the very first thing he describes uh, when he says the Lord's presence was coming, the first thing he describes is a cloud. Uh, and then at the end of his description, it's this really long description, it's 28 verses long. Uh, this is what he says at the end of his description. He says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In Psalm 97, it says this, um, it says, the Lord reigns, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people see his glory. And so a cloud, when it comes to important things in the Bible, when it comes to the presence of God is not usually just a cloud. It's representing the glory of God, the presence of God. It's representing God on his throne. Of course, if you read on into the New Testament, Jesus, he takes along with him Peter and James and John, and they ascend high up on a mountain. And it says that on this mountain, Jesus was transfigured into something glorious. And then it says after that happens, that a bright cloud wrapped around the top of the mountain and that that is when God the Father spoke. And so every time in the Bible we see a cloud like this, we're talking about the presence, we're talking about the glory of God. And so if that's the case, when this is describing Jesus ascending, entering into a cloud, this isn't just coincidental. This isn't just describing the weather that day. This is purposeful. And in fact, some of the other biblical authors think so too. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that after Christ was raised from the dead, he was seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. High above, that's ascension language, high above all rulers and authorities. 
In Philippians chapter 2, it says that he was exalted, highly exalted to the highest place. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says after he had provided purification for sins, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So if you're following the timeline, he's done this. And then it says he sits down at the throne. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. And so now do you want to know what happened in the cloud? The Apostle John, uh, much later in life, he actually got to see it. God also gave him a vision. And he actually, I think, is giving him a historic vision of, of something that happened, of what happened that day. So John gets to see both sides of it. He's standing there as Jesus ascends into heaven. And then later in life, God gives him a vision of what happened in the cloud. And John wrote it down in Revelation chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it describes the, the glorious heavenly, uh, chapter 4 describes the glorious throne room where God the Father and God the Spirit are dwelling. And it talks about the glory that they're receiving. But you, get to, you read through that and you think there's somebody missing. God the Son is missing. He's not there. It, it only talks about God the Father. It only talks about God the Spirit. God the Son isn't there. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, they actually point it out. It says this, and I'm just going to read this whole chapter to you. Uh, because you're wondering, where is Jesus? Where is he in the throne room? Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And here's the moment. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased from God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped. That's what happened in the cloud. Jesus enters into the throne room and is highly exalted. 
And by the way, if your heart is soaring right now, that is because in reading this text and meditating on it, enjoying it in the presence of other Christians, and in doing that, you are joining with what the Holy Spirit has been doing for all of eternity. You are joining in with what happened in that throne room when Jesus ascended to that throne. This is what it is we talked about last week to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. It's to, ex- to exalt Christ along with the Holy Spirit. This is what it is to flourish. And so I hope you're starting to see what we talked about last week, that the more we join with the Spirit in glorifying Christ, the more and more we will flourish. And so to that end, let's go to point three, what the ascension does for our flourishing. And to see this, look down at verse 12. Because in verse 12, it, it just all of a sudden gets kind of ordinary again. In verse 12, it's, we see they, they, they head back to Jerusalem. They even tell us how long of a walk it was. And in verse 13, we see that all 11 of the remaining disciples are there. In verse 14, not only is it the 11 disciples, but it says that the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are also there. And so here they are all gathered together. But notice what they do when they're all together in verse 14. It says they all join together constantly in prayer. Now that verse actually tells us two things that resulted from the ascension. Uh, First, it made them a praying community. And secondly, it made them a unified community. Just look at this. First, it made them a praying community. What's their response to seeing such a glorious sight? Their response is to go and pray. Now, remember what we talked about last week and, and what we're looking at this week. It's really, it's all one event. This all happened at one time. There was no time that passed between verse 8 and what came in verse 9. There was no week in between or six months in between two seasons. It happened immediately. And in verse 4, Jesus tells them not to leave Jerusalem until they receive the promised Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, remember, he commissions them to be his witnesses to the entire world. And then verse 9, he ascends to heaven. And so what we see here in verse 14 is their reaction to that command to wait in Jerusalem, their commissioning and Jesus' ascension. Their reaction to those things is to pray. And Luke actually talks a lot about prayer in both of his New Testament books, uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he mentions prayer 31 times. It actually shows up in 20 out of 28 chapters. And it says here that they prayed constantly. Now, what does that look like? I was reading that, and it reminded me of when we were kids. There was an episode of The Simpsons, and uh, on this episode of The Simpsons, there was a water park that opened called Mount Splashmore. Some of you might remember this episode. And uh, the Simpson kids really wanted their parents to take them to Mount Splashmore. And so uh, about probably 15 minutes of a 23-minute episode are just... Bart and Lisa saying to their parents, can we go to Mount Splashmore? 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 And they just say it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so we as children at the time learned from that. And so when we wanted something, we would just say to our mom, can we get this? 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 Until eventually she'd be like, fine, if you shut up, you can have it. The thing is with my mom, it worked. I don't think that we can annoy God into something that he doesn't want to do, like we could annoy our parents. But my point here isn't that if you ask enough times, God will just give in. The point is the consistency, the constancy, the obstinate persistence in praying and asking. 
And this is what it says the disciples did until the Holy Spirit came. And not only that, because uh, Luke mentions prayer so much in Acts, we, we are to infer from this that they continued to pray constantly throughout the rest of the book, that they just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. In other words, they were a praying community. And it was that praying that led to their flourishing. And their living out of the commission that was given to them. Which means there is actually a direct connection between being part of a praying community and individual flourishing. As well as the flourishing of the church. Um, And so there's two ways that I want to help us with that, just to be very practical. Um, Some of you may have already gotten one of these at some point. um, But this is just a, a small journal. And I want to encourage you to to become a person who prays and to even maybe write down some of the things that you're praying for. Uh, One of the things I really enjoy doing in a prayer journal is I'll write, um, you know, some of the things that I'm thanking God for. And then I'll make up all the things that I'm asking God for. And next to the things I'm asking God for, I put a little checkmark box. And it's really fun to ask God for those things, to pray and to pray and then to go back through and and check off the boxes uh, and see that your prayers aren't just bouncing off the ceiling but that God actually hears your prayers and he answers them. And so um, there's a bunch of these around. There's some on the table over there. There's some on the table as you go out. Um, Take one. This is my encouragement to you to become a person who prays and to to write down some of the things that you're asking God for uh, and to become a person who prays. Um, So please take one of those um, if you don't already have one. If we run out, let me know. I have more upstairs. Um, The second thing I want to encourage us to be a praying community is to join us on Sunday mornings at 930. Um, We meet every week at 930 in Gardenside Hall uh, to pray. Um, And we pray through a passage of scripture. We pray for the church. We pray for the community. And I want to encourage you to to be part of a praying community. We do that. Uh, We also do that in our midweek groups. um, And so that's another great way to come together to pray. Um, But you you see what happened. Jesus told them they were going to get the Holy Spirit. He commissioned them. He ascended, and their response was to become a praying community. But secondly, notice it also made them a unified community. There's another word describing their prayer in verse 14. It says, they joined together constantly in prayer. Now that word together, it's not just uh, casual, they happen to be in the room together. It literally means with one mind, or one passion, or with one voice. It's actually the idea of a symphony. Uh, have you ever been to, to a symphony and heard an orchestra or something like that? And, you know, you get there early and you hear everyone tuning their instruments and it has that sort of dissonant sound. I know some of you like that sound. Um, but then when they're ready, the conductor picks up, uh, the, picks up the baton. And then there's a moment of utter silence as she gets everybody calmed, ready. And then in perfect unity, when she indicates to play the first note, everybody plays their part. It's sometimes harmonizing, sometimes resting and being silent. But as one sound, they play together as one orchestra. That's the image here of joining together constantly in prayer, that they join as one voice. This, by the way, this together, it's another favorite word of Luke's. And it actually only shows up 11 times in the entire New Testament. And 10 out of the 11 times, it's here in the book of Acts. And again, no, notice who's in the room, by the way. This is, this is a diverse room. You have Peter and Andrew, James and John. They were business owners. You have Matthew, who's formerly a despised tax collector. You have Simon, who before meeting Jesus was some kind of political revolutionary, always getting himself in trouble. 
And then it mentions the women. And this is crucial to understanding not only the diversity, but the progressiveness of the early church. To include women in a gathering like this would have been uh, radically inclusive in the first century. And then to even mention it in the pages of scripture is to take it even further. And yet not only here, but all throughout the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we see the early church exalting the place of women in the church. And then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's there as well. And it says that all of them, in response to waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit and commissioning of them as witnesses and the ascension of Jesus, all of them, it says, were constantly praying together as a symphony. Which means the commissioning of the disciples as witnesses, the ascension that unified the church. Uh, the, the entire plan you can see in verse 8 is to unify community of people from every single nation on earth. That the church would be made up of and unified like an orchestra of people from every tribe and nation and language on earth. And of course, only the church of Jesus Christ could bring about a collective of flourishing like that. Only the church of Jesus Christ has brought about flourishing like that. And can I just say to you on this being unified with the body, I've been a pastor for, I think, over 20 years now. And I've seen time and time again, over and over and over again, that when a person steps away from the church, whether that's because of a busy work schedule, a busy life schedule, a fight with someone in the church, whatever reason you want to come up with, whenever somebody steps away from regularly coming together with their local body of Christians, seeing them week in and week out, I've just seen it dozens of times, you you just shrivel up spiritually. And in contrast to that, what we see as we go through the book of Acts is that when When the church is together, when they're unified, when they're of one mind, one voice, as you read through the book of Acts, what you find is they flourish. And not only that, but point four, when a church is unified and prayerful, it spreads. And that's what the ascension does for spreading. We have uh, to see this, we have to look at verses 15 to 26. And in those verses, the apostles, they they appoint uh, Matthias to take the place of Judas Iscariot. Uh, who famously betrayed Jesus, and we talked about his intestines and all of that. He's taking him place, his place. And here's the question. Why did they feel the need to replace Judas? Well, what was the point of that? Couldn't they have just carried on as they were with the 11 of them? Well, first of all, down in verse 20, Peter quotes Psalm 109. He says that uh, according to Psalm 109, somebody has to take his place. So we've got to appoint somebody new. So that's one part of it. But secondly, and I think the point is this. They had a monumental task ahead of them. Jesus commissioned them as witnesses to the ends of the earth, and yet they're weak in number. They're so weak in number. Just think about this. At the time uh, all this is happening, it says here in verse 15, look at it. It says there were only about 120 Christians in the whole world. That's it. 120 Christians in the whole world. And just to give some perspective on that, uh, just talk about the first sort of region that Jesus says he's sending them out to. Uh, it's estimated there are about 4 million people living in Israel at the time in the first century, which means there are 0.00003 Christians in Israel. Put that another way, one Christian for every 30,000 people. And yet Jesus said, you will be my witnesses not only to Israel, but to the ends of the earth. As, as small of a step as it may seem to appoint just one more apostle to reach that many people. Here's what I love about it. Like, it's such a tiny step. 
compared to what Jesus asked them to do. It's so tiny, so minuscule to add one person to the apostles. Here's what I love about it. They did it. They took a step. They took a small step. And I think this small step is actually monumentally instructive for us because the situation that we find ourselves in in 21st century Los Angeles is not that far removed from 1st century Jerusalem. The best stats coming out of USC a few years back say that Los Angeles is about 8% what you'd call a Bible-believing Christian, which means one out of every 80 people. Uh, in other words, it's, it's a lot better than one out of every 30,000, but it's still pretty daunting. And so the task of reaching just our city with the gospel, it, it's impossible by human standards. And yet, the, the lesson here to take, uh, take from this is to take a step, no matter how small it may seem, just take a step, one step. Have a conversation, make an invitation. Small as it may seem, that step, when you do that, get this, your tiny infinitesimal little step of trying to get somebody closer to knowing Jesus is apostolic in nature. It doesn't mean you are an apostle, but it means you're doing things like what the apostles did. And so to that end, here's what I want to do for each of us. I want to do for each of us what Jesus did for the 11 remaining disciples and what the, those guys did for Matthias and what they did for Paul later on and what Paul did for Timothy and for Mark and for Apollos and so on through the ages. I want to pray a prayer of commissioning. I think this text is commissioning us to be a witness to the ends of the earth. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what I'm going to ask you to do just very subtly. You don't need to make a big show of this. Um, I'm going to pray a prayer so you can close your eyes. But I want you just to just subtly just hold your, eye, your hands, your palms up, hands open, and receive this commissioning like, like a, a physical symbol of your reception of this commission. So you can close your eyes and receive this commissioning as I pray. Heavenly Father, as your risen Son ascended to glory, he declared that your people would receive power from the Holy Spirit to bear witness to him to the ends of the earth. And so we say, here we are, send us. Send us to be witnesses to our families, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people we meet incidentally. That not only would we flourish, but that your church would spread. Here we are. Send us. We ask this in the name of the ascended Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And just as we finish, just to wrap this up, here's why we can flourish. Here's why we want the church to spread. Back in Revelation 5, it said this about why Jesus is worthy to ascend, why he's worthy to be crowned and worshipped. It said in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it said, You are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so Jesus Christ, by the shedding of his blood, paid for our sins. And in so doing, he bought us back from the slavery of sin and death to set us free to live in this eternal kingdom. And notice who he did it for. He did it for persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, the fulfillment of the commission to be his witnesses on the earth. That's who he did it for. And this is the starting point of all flourishing is to have your sins atoned for.
And it's also the message that causes the spreading. And this is what we are witnesses to. Which means the ascension of Jesus to the throne room of heaven. That is the detonator that unleashes the power of our flourishing and our witness. And so as we worship him, as we become a community that prays and is unified, and as we are sent out to be witnesses, may we flourish and may his kingdom reach the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be your witnesses. We want to flourish. Father, help us to do that. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.